Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Giselle Donnelly and I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I am joined by Dalburu Hart and Julia Zosa. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace that tend to emerge along the line that runs from the Baltic to the Black Sea. We call this the Eastern Front and about why these issues matter to the United States. If you enjoy this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing on Apple Broadcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you and welcome. Dalibor, I believe you have a, an initial question for our guest today. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Giselle. Um, I think it's fair to say that the current tensions uh, in, in Eastern Europe, particularly on the Russian-Ukrainian border, have given rise to this whole genre, to a renaissance of this genre of, 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 sort of you know, trying to understand Putin and what Putin really wants, articles explaining that this is all about uh, destabilizing Ukraine or that this is all about NATO or this is all about domestic politics. Uh, and I, was, I found it really refreshing to sort of read um, an antidote to... Uh, to this, to this, to this, to this genre in a way, uh, written by one of my intellectual heroes from 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 St. Anthony's, Professor Timothy Garth Nash in the Guardian recently. We'll put the link to the to the show notes, uh, in which I think he explains very very lucidly what this is really about. And I'm going to just quote one sentence from the piece, which is which is that Putin's long-term goal in Eastern Europe is perfectly clear. He wants to restore as much as possible of the empire, great power status, and sphere of influence that Russia lost so dramatically 30 years ago with the disintegration of the Soviet Union in December 1991. In other words, he, he says, uh, Putin wants a return of Yalta. And for the West, it should be obvious that it is in our interest to prevent that from happening and to keep in place the arrangements and principles and rules that are tied to the Helsinki Final Act of the 1970s. Uh, yet, and this is my first question for Professor Garth Nash, whom we are delighted to welcome on the podcast, is you know how, how come we've sort of come to a point where uh, not everybody in the West sees this with the same degree of clarity, um, and also how come not everybody in the West seems to be willing to put, you know, their money and resources where their mouth is on 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 on, on this issue because it really seems patently obvious that preserving some kind of rules based order in Eastern Europe is in the interest of the United States and the Western world. It's a great pleasure to be with you and a, and a great question. And um, of course, what I go on to say is that it's Putin's tactics that are unpredictable. And that's part of his skill. I mean, actually, if you look at successful players, geopolitical players in history, the mixture of strategic clarity and tactical flexibility is a very effective one. Um, to cite a positive example, Helmut Kohl, uh, the Chancellor of German Unity, actually had that combination of strategic clarity and tactical flexibility. I don't think it's a great puzzle why the West is all over the place on this, because really ever since the 1990s, when I remember, by the way, when I argued in 1990 that the new democracies of Central Europe should become members of the EU and NATO, 
a lot of policymakers in Western Europe threw up their hands in horror. I mean, let's not imagine it was all consensus all the way. But certainly since the 2000s, we've reached a point of strategic confusion where there are those, including many in Germany, who are prepared simply to defend the status quo, which draws a new line of division along the existing eastern frontier of the EU and NATO. And those like me, who believe that we have to be consistent, not have double standards in our Helsinki vision, and therefore what's source for the German or French goose is source for the Ukrainian or Belarusian gander. And that we have to have a really consistent Helsinki policy, which looks for an entire Europe, by the way, in the end, including a democratic Russia, which consists of independent, sovereign, self-governing states. And that's the great strategic discussion, which is being played out before our eyes, particularly in the key European power in all of this, which is, of course, Germany. So um, if I may, I'd like to turn the discussion a little bit into Russia, also based on um, the most recent article that you wrote, Professor, in which you basically say that um, what is to be recommended is to be um, anti-Putin but pro-Russian. The question that I have in this context is, do we have indeed a Putin problem or do we have a Russia problem? Um, if we're looking at, um, you know, opinion polls also across Central and Eastern Europe, but into Russia, um, we see that um, something that Khodorkovsky says that 30-40% of Russians are Western open, right? Um, that leaves us with 60-70% that are not. Um, you've looked um, for your entire career into divisions um, within democracies. Um, and so looking into Russia, how are we to fathom this? Um, do we have indeed just a Putin problem, a regime problem? Or is it um, is it is the percentage of Russians that perceive the United States and the West overall NATO as a threat, um, something that um, we should focus on? And then what is to be done about that? So another great question. Um to recall Dean Asherson's famous quip about Britain, Russia has lost an empire and not yet found a role. And we Brits know that that takes a long time. So this is a long process. And the kinds of figures that you're citing are, of course, dynamic figures um, I mean, if you look at the figures for Putin's own popularity and how that has declined, you can see it's dynamic. But also, to take, I think, a really interesting example, look at the figures of approval for NATO membership in Ukraine. 2013, yeah. before the 2014 seizure of Crimea, 36% of memory serves. Now 59% countrywide and higher than that amongst younger Ukrainians also in eastern Ukraine, even in eastern Ukraine. So these are dynamic, not fixed, eternal constants. Um, of course, it is overwhelmingly a Putin problem. Um, I, uh, you will recall 
that Yeltsin at one point toyed with the idea of having Boris Nemtsov as his successor and then rejected the idea partly, I think, because he needed protection for himself and his family from someone connected to the Russian security apparatus. But be that as it may, it's absolutely clear that Russian and European history would have been different if Boris Nemtsov had become Yeltsin's successor. Um, Looking forward, the key question is this. Is Russia going to find democracies uh, on its western frontier, directly on its western frontier in Belarus, in Ukraine, in Moldova? That, for me, is obviously precisely what Putin fears. And that has two dimensions. Number one, the old big Brzezinski line with Ukraine, Russia is still an empire. Without Ukraine, it has the possibility of being a nation state. Um, But also, when you get attractive, successful democracies on on your Western frontier, you start to want what they're having, to quote when Harry met Sally. Well, so that that raises the question and it puts the current Ukraine crisis um, in quite a stark relief. Um, If this is the moment where the Russian, the rock on which the Russian imperial or re-imperialization project crashes, uh, doesn't that give the West, the United States and its allies, particularly NATO, a very, very strong um, reason to want to draw the line where it is, um, uh, lest uh, uh, the uh, Russian uh, Putin imperial project appear to succeed. Yeah, but it also gives Putin a very strong motive, an even stronger motive. Not to push, not to push the line. To, 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 I mean, I imagine that and as we said i imagine that his to the extent that he is still thinking rationally and realistically and i guess there is a small there's a question mark let's stipulate that because people who've been in absolute power for so long tend to get hubristic and lose contact with reality but let's assume he's still calculating rationally i assume his rational calculation is to keep effective russian hegemony over ukraine and belarus I would assume that's a realistic game. I don't think he's seriously believing he can roll back NATO forces from the Baltic states, um, right? So, so you're absolutely right. That gives us, if we are thinking strategically, a really major motive to you know give this all we've got. But two cautionary notes. Um, One, the United States clearly has a heap of problems of its own and for more than a decade has one way or another been trying to pivot to Asia. So I don't read this as a major long-term geostrategic commitment on the part of the United States. I would love to see that as we saw it in the 1940s, but I'm not sure that's what it is. Point number two... You know, this should be Europe's business. I mean, we now have um, 
not an entire Europoland free, but we're closer to Europoland free than ever before. The European Union should be a major strategic actor. So I don't think it should all be on the United States. And I come back to my point that the key swing player in this is Germany. I mean, France will always have the goalless temptation, but ultimately on Eastern policy will go with Germany. Britain has been absolutely stalwart on this, but thanks to Brexit, has kind of half written itself out of the European game. You know, for example, why is the Normandy format only Britain and France? Did they, sorry, I beg your pardon, why is the Normandy format only Germany and France? Did they guarantee Ukraine's territorial integrity in 1994? No. The United States, Russia, and Britain guaranteed Ukraine's territorial integrity in 1994. So it's a real failure of British policy that we're not more engaged in that. But if you take those two slightly semi-detached positions, that leaves you with Germany as a central power. I think you're you're putting the finger at at what strikes me as as, as really core of the of the trouble here, which is um, that notwithstanding the years of discussions about European strategic autonomy, European sovereignty in the wake of, of Trump's election, the sort of idea that Europeans need to take their destiny into their own hands, in this crisis we've seen a fair amount of disagreement on, on what needs to be done. Maybe in the light of Putin's escalation, there is the same direction of travel. You see the discussion shifting in places like the Netherlands or indeed even in in, 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 in Germany. Uh, but I mean, I wonder what this crisis tells us about Europe's ability to sort of be an autonomous actor, plus, you know, with the UK being outside of the EU and, and not, notwithstanding its current shambolic politics, playing a hugely constructive role in this in, 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 in this whole effort. Are we really going to see, um, you know, are we, are we back to coalitions of the willing in a way, or, or is there... Is there a sort of you know light at the end of the tunnel for the Federalists in the in the in, in the form of some sort of coherent EU-wide response? So the institutional questions are completely secondary in this. Institutional questions about the EU, because European foreign policy is always going to be a mix of coalitions of the willing plus support from the EU institutions, right? So, you know, think of our uh, Iran, the nuclear diplomacy around Iran, G3, E3 plus EU. Uh, Think of the period when we had a successful Ukrainian policy in the response to, well, starting with the Orange Revolution, actually. Um, A few key players in that case, um, you know, Germany and Poland particularly, plus the EU. So that's the institutional form. Strategic autonomy and European sovereignty are, in my view, both complete misnomers. It's not about (laughs) autonomy, and it's not about sovereignty. It's about power. What we need is more European power as an equal partner to the United States. That's what it's about. And... That's what we're not getting. The matter is confused by the goalies' talk of strategic autonomy and having our own policy. 
Now, to answer your question, are we getting closer to it or further away from it? I, I, I'm, I'm honestly not sure I see a secular trend. I mean, I've, I'm a founder member of the European Council on Foreign Relations. Unlike the US Council on Foreign Relations, the European Council on Foreign Relations has been dedicated for more than a decade to getting a more effective and coherent European foreign policy. And if you ask yourself, you know, how well have we done? Well, the answer is pretty sobering, actually. But at least I can tell you what there is in Europe, be it Paris, Berlin, London, you name it, Warsaw also, perhaps not Budapest. Um, there is at least the beginnings of a shared strategic culture. There's an understanding that faced not just with Russia, but also with a China that's already a superpower. That's what we have to do, right? But we're not all that much closer to doing it. With these divisions in mind, looking into Central and Eastern Europe, we keep seeing and we keep talking in this podcast about these polls. 40-something percent of Slovaks, um, Dalibor highlighted a while ago, are um, perceiving or blaming NATO for the Ukraine crisis. 43% of Germans we've heard recently in Eastern, former Eastern Germany, are blaming the United States and NATO for what is happening. How do we fathom that? Um, what can we do in terms of looking into a, a more solidarity um, policy within the EU, a more cohesive European security? What do we do with these widening and deepening divisions that we have with regards to, in the end, the aim of the West the European Union, NATO, um, towards European security? So a lot of criticism has been leveled at uh, Chancellor Olaf Scholz um, for his so-called Ostpolitik. I wrote the history of Ostpolitik, or a history of Ostpolitik, I should say, um, Willy Brandt's uh, Ostpolitik. And of course it had its faults and its weaknesses, But my God, it was a strategy. It was a European strategy, which was then pursued over more than two decades, if you date it back to the early 1960s. So my answer to your question is we need a strategy and then we need to stick to it. And public opinion oscillates, right? Particularly on questions of foreign policy. It's, it's very often not settled bedrock. Um, these, these are very disturbing results. But if you have a clear strategy that you stick to and where there's a significant consensus, both between countries and between parties, right, then on the whole, public opinion will, will go along. The other point is, since, of course, I've written a lot about Central Europe, is the problem of Viktor Orban and Yaroslav Kaczynski. But in this particular case, there are different problems. Uh, in terms of undermining democracy, they're the same problem. Yaroslav Kaczynski is um, urbanization a la Polonaise. But in terms of foreign policy, they're different because, of course, Yaroslav Kaczynski thinks the Russians are the people who killed his brother in the plane crash. And so you're not going to get Poland on a pro-Russian line. But the phenomenon of Viktor Orban 
going to Moscow the other day, begging another billion cubic meters of gas for Hungary, you know, at a, at a, a reach me down price, criticizing the Western and EU sanctions, which he has endorsed as an EU head of government, and saying that the West needs to understand, I quote, Russia's needs, Russia's needs, quote unquote. That is really shocking. And so clearly the 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 the, the disintegration of the European Union politically, of which Orban is a you know is a leading example, is a problem in itself for a European uh, uh, Eastern strategy. Uh, I wonder if I could just to be uh, a little bit different and to uh, sort of conclude matters, uh, 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 getting our heads up out of the trenches a bit, uh, to try to look beyond the immediate uh, Ukraine crisis and ask what you think the next steps for the United States and the West might be. And I'll give you a choice of three scenarios to, to kick you off. Uh, the one being the happy one uh, being that Putin declares that the exercise is over and he's spread his wings and ruffled them magnificently, but doesn't uh, cross any current uh, front lines. A second one is Joe Biden's minor incursion. Uh, and I'll give you your choice of directions on that one. And the third, and I would say probably the, the least likely, the full bone uh, uh, 1943 uh, invasion of uh, of Ukraine. Uh, so, what ought the response to be? Both, and you can sort of in the immediate moment. But does does the outcome of this crisis point us uh, toward different strategic directions uh, in terms of a ten year horizon or something like that? So. Of your three options, it's absolutely clear that number two, the quote-unquote small impression, is by far the most dangerous one for the West. By far the most dangerous, which unfortunately makes it more likely. Because the most likely. can see exactly yeah. that. Yes. So The porridge is just right. We're speaking yeah. on the day after a joint press conference between President Joe Biden and Chancellor Olaf Scholz. And it was an extraordinary spectacle because essentially Olaf Scholz only had to say, speak one sentence. All he needed to say was, if Putin invades Ukraine, Nord Stream 2 is dead. Basta. Finished. That is what everybody was expecting. That's all he needed to say. Actually, he could have stayed in Berlin, and if he said it in Berlin, it would have been fine. Um, and his refusal to say it, despite repeatedly being invited to say it by the journalists in the room, and despite Joe Biden saying it, um, was quite extraordinary and a huge mistake on his part. So I would be really worried in the small incursion scenario where somehow Germany might possibly imagine it could still carry on with Nord Stream 2 and all the advocates of what I call shame-faced Yalta, the Yalta that does, dares not speak its name, 
uh, would, would, would come to the fore again. Um, in the longer term, though, even that small incursion, let alone, you know, uh, Putin getting some diplomatic concession promises. By the way, arms control talks, which I think is entirely reasonable to have. That actually does seem to me a perfectly legitimate discussion, not about Ukraine NATO membership, but about arms control. If, if he, either of those two scenarios, medium to long term, keep open the possibility for what we really need to do, which is to have a long term strategy, not only about defending the Europolan free we have, but about investing heavily in Ukraine, Moldova, Georgia, when it becomes possible, Belarus, to build them up to what they clearly are not yet, uh, which is really strong uh, democratic independent states, and keep open that long-term future for Russia. I think really keeping that open, and I mean this, and even if to go to your earlier question about public opinion in Russia, even if that's a 20-year horizon, we still have to have it in mind. I mean, let me just remind you that when Egon Bar and Willy Brandt started designing the new Ostpolitik, after the building of the Berlin Wall in August 1961, the notion that Germany could be united seemed unbelievably remote, fantastically unrealistic. So it may seem to you wildly unrealistic to think that one day a democratic Russia could be, have a, 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 be an associate member of the EU and be a member of some redefined NATO. But I myself genuinely believe in that vision and keeping true to that vision. And last point, there's one reason to think it may not be so unrealistic after all, and that reason is China. China is the global geostrategic challenge of the next 30 years. Putin and Xi Jinping may be standing shoulder to shoulder at the Winter Olympics criticizing the West. I do not believe that the Russians, most Russians, will like a future for their country as the junior subordinate part partner of China. And so in the long term, I really do believe that Russia's future will lie in some sort of special relationship with Europe and the West. Well, that's a surprisingly cheerful note to conclude on. I, I, I just hope... I think we I, should I, make I, it a cast member. <laughs> I, I, I just wish we had more time. One thing we we didn't really get into, which uh, you, Professor Gartner, has just touched on somewhat this, this tension in, in American foreign policy thinking and, and, and maybe even the generational change that might be occurring right now with Americans on the one hand being cognizant of the importance of stability in Central and Eastern Europe for, for America's interests and at the same time this sense of overextension and the need to set new priorities and to orient resources towards uh, towards the Indo-Pacific and, and, and so on and so forth. And, and one sort of nightmare scenario to, again, conclude on a more pessimistic note is, is that in some future crisis in Eastern Europe, uh, with Europe equivocating and not really being up to the job, a less patient American administration will simply pull out the rug from underneath the Europeans. 
and and there there won't be a sort of nice soft landing that that we would like to see with Europeans stepping up. But that that's probably a subject for another conversation. Uh, well, it's important that we do not end on a note of optimism because it would break our streak <laughs> so far. Um, uh, thank you so much, Professor Ash, for joining us. You know, you know if I may, my, the, the great formula that I always use, and it's a very wise formula, is Gramsci's form, formula, pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. That's wow. exactly what we need. Uh, as John McCain used to say, it's only darkest before it's completely black. <laughs> so, uh, at any rate, uh, we should, you know, we should fight on uh, regardless. Uh, so, f- uh, for me, uh, Giselle Donnelly and my colleagues, Talbot Hodge and Yulia Zosar. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Front. Our podcast is dedicated to discussing the security challenges arising along the line from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, aei.org, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please be in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag EasternFrontPod. That's a one word, one long word. And if you enjoyed the episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and review us. Thank you and goodbye until next time.